What's up, little mistakers? Welcome to the Humor in Mistakes podcast, where we encourage everyone to find humor in their mistakes. I'm your host, Donovan McNeil, and each week my co-host and I, Andrew Gleason, have a guest on our show who's made mistakes in the past. We get them to open up about their lives, and Andrew and I laugh at them, except this week. Trigger warning, little mistakers. This episode is a lot heavier than our normal episodes. Our guest, Lance Dixon, tried to kill himself. And if that makes you uncomfortable, if you don't want to hear an episode about that, it's okay. You can skip this episode and tune into a different one. Thank you for being a listener. The overall message of this episode is that if you're thinking of killing yourself, go get help. It is okay to ask for help if you're having a rough time. Suicide is a very serious Suicide is a very serious issue and there are people out there that need help. So little mistakers, Andrew and I are asking you to help us help them. We're starting a fundraiser for the National Suicide Prevention Lifeline. What that is is a national network of local crisis centers that provide free and confidential emotional support to people that are in suicidal crisis or emotional distress. The great thing about that Lifeline telephone number is it's available 24 hours a day, seven days a week, like Waffle House. So if anybody's in trouble, they can call that number anytime and get assistance. We're going to drop the link to the fundraiser in the description of the podcast. And even if you don't trust Andrew and I and you think we're going to use the money on comic books, Facebook donates the money directly to the National Suicide Prevention Lifeline. So we don't get to touch it at all. Thank you, little mistakers, for helping out in advance. This episode features the very funny and humble Lance Dixon. Lance Dixon is a very well-dressed man and a consummate professional. Uh, Lance always greets you with a handshake and a smile and recognizes that you're in the room when you come in. Uh, I really appreciate Lance for jumping on this podcast because he was so open about his past. And one of his goals is to really get rid of this whole man up culture because he recognizes that there are men out there who don't get the help they need because they're trying to be the tough guy. Little Mistakers, this is a great episode. Take a listen. What's up, Little Mistakers? Welcome to the Humor in Mistakes podcast. I'm here with fellow comedian Lance Dixon, my co-host Andrew Gleason, and uh, I'm Donovan McNeil. What's up, Lance? Hey, how you guys doing out there? How are you, man? Especially that one guy in Indonesia. Hi. <laughs> <laughs> how are you doing, dude? Good, good. Things are uh, going well here in the beautiful state of North Carolina. Uh, you should have some beef with Andrew. Uh, we were talking about people that have probably made mistakes, like who would be a good guest. <laughs> and uh, he just was like, Lance. I was trying to Well, um, well, I mean, yeah, the, the biggest thing is about nine years ago, I hung myself from a bridge. Wait, for real? Yeah. Yeah. 40 foot bridge. Uh, walked away from it. See the caliber of guests I get? <laughs> so, yeah. so, yeah. So, Andrew can identify him. Wow. We just got right into it. Uh, 
We like to get to know the guests first, uh, and then we jump into it. But we'll that is, that. I'll write that down. Well, <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah. Uh, well, to get started, uh, before we got to the bridge sure. hanging, uh, just tell like a little bit about yourself. Like, who are you? Who is Lance Dixon? What does he like to do? Uh, well, I come from New Hampshire. Um, my parents are uh, Irish, Lithuanian, and French Canadian. So one whole half of the family comes from the Magdalen Islands off the coast of Canada, and the other half came here to uh, make shoes. And uh, the Lithuanians, the Lithuanians and the Irish side, yes, came to make shoes. The Kamalskises and the and um, uh, the family for Cork McDermott's. My grandmother was sort of a uh, wild woman. Uh, she was a semi-professional poker player. Okay. And she got pregnant with my father from my per- actual paternal grandfather before World War II. He went off to World War II. In the meantime, she married a guy named Dixon. Uh, and then when, and he died in jail. And then when my grandfather came back, she married Joe Collette, uh, who was my paternal grandfather. But my, Joe Collette was sort of a cheap, rough guy and never actually officially adopted my father so we're dixons but we should be colettes so there's a lot of backwoods melodrama in the family so uh i have an older brother jeff an older sister pamela and a twin sister stacy who's five minutes younger than i did not know you were a twin and uh, your grandmother was the first feminist like out there she having had, fun yep she was also one of the last victims of polio in new hampshire she had a brace on her leg uh, Cashy used to call her. That's where she kept her uh, ace of spades. Right, right, exactly. She had a little card thing, but uh, very tough uh, woman. And um, yeah, uh, Hampstead, New Hampshire is a rough place. My grandfather was a, uh, a welder, heavy equipment operator. He was in the in the back end of World War II. He went through North Africa and then up through Italy, which is sort of the the, the front that got ignored. It was pretty rough. Uh, so he came back, and he was a welder and started a sawmill. Um, so I grew up spending summers and weekends uh, killing trees and making little pieces out of them and stacking them up. And <laughs> it was pretty bad. Uh, Mixing chain oil. And so I don't know. We're going to get into the, the, the whole in-between of sure. you hanging from the bridge. But we spent the summer in New Hampshire, yeah. and... Uh, I can understand. Like, I don't know what happened in between, but New Hampshire is a very boring place. It's idyllic, but, you know, then you're like, as soon as you exhale and go, yeah, what do you want to do? Uh, (laughs) (laughs) Uh, We went to go see movies. Yeah, yeah. Saw the funniest, like, commercial that I have ever seen. Um, The movie, so you know, like, they have pre, like, in a a normal movie, they have, like, previews that are, like, from. Local businesses. Yeah, they're yes. all local businesses. Yep, like yeah, yeah. they're the best. They're the <laughs> they don't. They don't. They don't show them to other people for their approval first. Just... Yeah, you can say that. Yeah, they just sort of let it out. They uh, had a very um, specific. Uh, please don't talk during the movie segment. It was pretty. Was it racist? Why did it make me laugh so much? Well, one, they had an Asian dude, and then they put subtitles for him. Oh, that's what it was. And he was. Uh, Pretty much speaking perfectly fine English, <laughs> um, and then it and then it cuts to please silence your cell phones and don't uh, talk loudly during the movie. And it was and it cut to a black guy oh, <laughs> yeah. who was essentially laughing and spilling popcorn everywhere, like 
Well, I made, I mean, there weren't a lot of African Americans <laughs> in my high school. I made the track team. <laughs> <laughs> I was a hurdler in, in New Hampshire. Um, they don't have uh, many people of color up there. No, no, no. My grandfather would, would tell a joke that the only people of color in town were in the burn ward in the hospital, and they were getting better every day. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I uh, the whole summer I counted eight black people, and they were yeah. all at Walmart. Yeah. There was one at the Applebee's. Did they I give saw. you the look like, hey. Hey, what's up? Hey. You good here? <laughs> you knew the time. You, how long are you staying? Are you safe? I'm good. <laughs> um, I was afraid to break down. Like I said many prayers like to my car. I was like, just don't break down in New Hampshire. After we get out of this state, you can break down three times and I won't be upset. We, 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 they're not racist in New Hampshire. They just hate everybody. It's, <laughs> when people, it's a classic place to go if you want to be left alone. J.D. Salinger went to New Hampshire, famous author. You want to be left alone. And uh, he gave authorization for his neighbors to say that they were J.D. Salinger. Yeah. And people would drive, make, make this journey, these young authors and things, make this journey to find J.D. Salinger and talk to the guy who's like their hero. And they would go, they would find his house. And we, the neighbors would go, yeah, this isn't his house. We heard so much about <laughs> Emerson and uh, who was the other one? It was Emerson and uh, another uh, poet. or uh, Frost. Frost, uh, another one. Taught at the high school that I went. Really? I mean, not when I was there. It was before me. Yeah. Okay. But apparently he was a really, really a, a jerk guy. He was a very I mean, round sure. type pretty guy. But that's the place you want to go uh, if you want to disappear is what you If you're you saying. win the lottery and you like the, the seasons and foliage and cross-country skiing, you know, your winter house, you, you, you could do worse than have one in New Hampshire. People aren't going to buck you. Fair enough. If you, if you commit a crime, go Lake, to New Hampshire. Lake Winnipesaukee, you launder the money, you buy yeah. a nice place in Winnipesaukee, no, one, no one's going to ask you how you Exactly. Yeah. They don't care. They don't care. The police force is not hiking up a mountain to come find you either. No, no. They were excellent police in New Hampshire. The <laughs> only police I saw in New Hampshire were directing traffic. Yeah. Very quiet. Yeah. So I, I went to uh, Pinkerton Academy for high school. Uh, I went to University of Kentucky for a semester. I lived on the streets of Lexington, Kentucky for a couple of weeks after I didn't make it in, in uh, college. And then I joined the Army, and that's where I made my, here it is, folks, commercial break, my first mistake. Oh, <laughs> my oh first we're big, here. First big mistake. Uh, as you can tell, I've been bugged my whole life to go into radio Right. <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> you have a face for it. Yeah, it's a beautiful smile for radio. And so uh, I went to the MEP station, which is where you go into the Army, and they give you these tests and things. And there was a colonel there, a great guy, who I sure to listen to. He said, you know, Lance, we have this guy coming around from Armed Forces Radio, and I think you should talk to him. And I said, nah. <laughs> I went and became a, a calf scout instead. So I could have gotten a full boat communications degree or training from the Army, and I, I turned it down. What's a Cav Scout? Good question. A Cav Scout, um, C-A-V, C-A-L, Calvary is the hill that Christ got crucified on. Cavalry, C-A-V, is, is mounted troopers. What they would call in, in, um, in Europe, they call them dragoons. In other words, you, you, you arrive um, in vehicles and fight on foot. So the Cav, Cavalry uh, does zone area and route reconnaissance for armored groups. So the scouts. They're the scouts, literally the scouts. So they go out and scout the battle. There's ones on foot. There's there's helicopter. There's Humvees, and we were in Bradley. We were Bradley scouts. So uh, if you're an armored commander and you're wondering if that little red line on the map is actually a road that's still there, are the bridges still there? 
things like that, you would send scouts in front of you. On foot. Uh, and vehicles on foot, whatever. Uh, it would depend on the thing. That track uh, that track career helped. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It was great. <laughs> I, no, I, I spent summers, you know, with a rather stern, abusive father and a sawmill in the family and uh, throwing wood around and then being on the track team. So boot camp wasn't especially – wasn't that bad. It was sort of funny because, you know, because they try to – the first, a drill sergeant's job is to try to figure out who should I not give a hand grenade to. <laughs> right? That's their job. So as soon as they get off the bus, they just pressurize you, right? And if you if you crack from some stranger yelling at you – You don't get a grenade. You don't get a grenade. So <laughs> no grenades for that guy. So I'm standing there like, you know, the guys are crying. I'm like, dude, they just met us. You think someone that just met you hates you that much? Seriously, seriously, it's not. You You were able to have an objective viewpoint of like this is just what it is. Yeah, you took nothing to the knew what to took didn't take it to the heart. Yeah, they had to put us in bed at some point. They got to feed us. I mean, you know, they're not. I mean, seriously, it's not the. It's not okay. If I join the French Foreign Legion, okay, okay, you could (laughs) (laughs) you, you could end up bludgeoned, you know. In a corner somewhere, messed up if they don't really like you, but not in the American Army. Okay. You know that doesn't. They need really, you. They need yeah, the body. They're, so they're lucky to have you there. It's a volunteer force. Everyone's there because they want to be. And it's, if you're even if you're active, you don't want to be there anymore. You can talk to your commander, and, and it's not easy, but you can get out because it's a volunteer force. That's what makes it the best army in the world. Is everyone who's there wants to be there. The person putting potatoes in your plate wants to be there, and the person fixing the truck wants to be there, and the person doing the. So uh, well, they know that if a soldier who doesn't want to be there isn't a good soldier. Exactly, you can't you can't motivate. You know, if you don't want to be there, you shouldn't be there. Take it where the hand grenades. Bye. <laughs> you know, because you deal with with you know people you know watching those back. You know, something like that. So um, so I was a reservist for nine years. Uh, I got sent some uninteresting places. I was a terrible soldier because I have clinical depression and ADHD. Not the best thing to make, you know, an armed forces career out of. You forget to hold the thing of the grenade. Like, like did I pull the pin? Uh, did I pull it? Is it pull pin throw, or do I throw it then run up and pull the pin? Um, yeah, it's bad stuff. But uh, in the field, I loved it because you're just professional hide and seek. Uh, back in Gary, Gary said formations and cleaning things is not terrible, but running around, um, sneaking up on people is incredibly fun. You saw combat? No, no. I got. No. I went to the Mexican border. Um, horrible place full of wonderful people. Um, but besides that, no. Got to go to Germany, got to go to Canada, things like that. All training exercises. But the only time I was ever doing something is when we were working with the Border Patrol okay. down there. Uh, we were walking good guys into bad guys. So you know, these big sites and, and things like that. And we would take up a position and I don't get operational detail. But anyway, we were helping out the, helping out the good guys with the extra stuff that we had in the Army that the, those guys didn't have. At the time, um, you know, working out of Fort God Bless You, which we would call, you know, Fort Hachuca, Arizona, <laughs> which we would call Fort God Bless You. Is that what you had always wanted to do? Like, did you know that you were going to end up going to the Army when you were a kid? Uh, no, no, not at all. Um, I was a reservist, so while I was a reservist, I uh, had a job doing inside sales. Do four or five hours of phone time a day, call, a, call over 100 people a day for various commercial products. And I got into uh, commercial telemarketing. And it was uh, hiring and training people to, to develop leads for, like, software and stuff like that. So I was working for a telemarketing company. So you, you had a software company. You'd come to us. 
and say, I got these 5,000 people to call. We're trying to get demos out to them or whatever. And I would help them with the script and help train people and we'd run the program. That's what I was doing. Um, and then uh, I went back to school when I was 30 for HVAC. Okay. Which is sort of an anti-mistake. <laughs> <laughs> if, you're, if you're not happy with what you're doing, right, you know, and I had some money with the GI Bill and, and things like that, um, you know, education is the, is the way to get out of it. So um, horrible industry I was in, no respect to the industry at all. Um, you can be a very skilled telemarketer, and they're like, yeah, just bang the phones. <laughs> it's, there's no mobility. What's that? There's no mobility. Well, no, I, I was hiring and training people, and I was running programs and stuff. Yeah. But, um, yeah, for some reason, people don't think telemarketing is a skill. It's weird. So uh, I went into the trades. I was a 30-year-old apprentice tearing out boilers in, in Manchester, New Hampshire, threading pipe by hand. And and then um, as I got older, uh, I, my monopolar depression set in, where my upside was normal. And then I would have these episodes of severe depression, which made it tough to keep a job, um, even withdrawn, uh, wrecked my relationship with uh, my uh, wife and uh, kids. And uh, it was just horrible. Yeah. And then in, that didn't kick in until your 30s? Yeah, till later in life, yeah. yeah. I'd always been a moody son of a bitch up until then. Uh, but... Uh, <laughs> <laughs> But uh, melodramatic or emotional, whatever, or sensitive young, sensitive young man, or you want to call it. Yeah. But um, as far as severe episodes of you know can't get out of my own way, or I had a very angst-filled, angry flavor of depression. Um, you know, pacing and nothing was worth doing, and um, uh, ruined everything. Became my rear withdrawn, and uh, episodes became deeper. Um, and then, you know, I guess, you know, trigger warning, if, if you're thinking of killing yourself, you should go get help right now. Cause we're going to start talking about the heavy depression part of the show. Okay. And, you know, I'm not a doctor. I'm just talking about my personal experience, what happened to me. And, and, um, I'm talking about it, I'm talking about this to help people. Okay. You're keeping just, us from getting sued. Okay. It's not, it's yeah. not humble bragging. I'm just telling you what this is, what it's like. I was married, and occasionally I have a depressive episode, not by a shotgun. And then my poor wife, Christina, had to go return the shotgun. And the only funny part about the whole thing is you're holding a shotgun, intending to kill yourself, and they ask you, do you need ammo? Now, <laughs> now you know if you tell the person behind the counter, I just need one shell, that, <laughs> that, that you can't do that, right? Yeah. That blows the whole plan. Right. But then you're spending extra money that your family is going to need. Yeah, after exactly. <laughs> they're going, why do you buy a 24-pack? <laughs> <laughs> what was he planning on doing with those? Yeah. After that happened a couple of times uh, in some uh, voluntary hospitalizations. Were uh, you on meds? Oh, yeah. Uh, I've, I've been on about 14 different antidepressants. Yeah. yeah. Was there substance abuse? No. No? No. No. Not even drinking? Not even drinking. Wow. Seriously, Pretty you know weird. those tradesmen like to throw them back. That's that. There's other another really funny thing too because I went to group therapy and of course there's a there's a there's a uh, oxycodone epidemic going on, and so I would go to group therapy, and for depression, right? Supposedly labeled a depression support group, and people go around telling their stories, you know, and every single one of them involved some chemical dependency and stuff like that, and selling their mom's microwave to buy a hit and things like that. 
and it would get around to me, and I'd be like, well, I, sometimes I'm really sad. And I would just get the microphone to something <laughs> out because most of their troubles were centered around medicating themselves in, in, in an illegal way. Um, I went on a lot of walks. I was withdrawn. I lost a lot of jobs. Uh, I got another. I got other jobs. What were you thinking during this time? At, at like as is as is happening, because um, you're trying to get your help because you're going to group therapy. Like, what are you thinking in the back of your group head? therapy didn't stick, and the regular therapy didn't, didn't stick, and the drugs were okay, but not that great. And the the trade off is I could nub myself and not hold a job, and sit there on the couch watch my kids starve, or I could try to you know you know, man up, which is the worst term ever. And, uh, you know, testosterone is a great thing, but it's not an antidepressant. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> you well, can do a first, lot of things. One of my first thoughts when yeah. you started to talk about all of this was, um, like, how dare you uh, claim depression when you're clearly a privileged male? <laughs> <laughs> uh, machismo and depression really do go together. Um, I, I was trying to do later on, I was trying to do speaking engagements where I talked to groups of people that should hear about, you know, testosterone is not an antidepressant because, um, unfortunately, or what's happening is when you think about depression, you think about a really sad 13, 14 year old girl doing a talk on the moth radio hour, right? You hear, think about the face of depression is, is, is young, you know, teenage people, usually women, uh, usually people going through you know, uh, sexual identity crisis and things like that, and they have depression about it and stuff like that. And that's what's getting a lot of the, the press now because the Me Too movement and stuff like that. Uh, but, you know, the most likely person to shoot a police officer is the, the police officer. <laughs> oh, I didn't you know, think about that. Yeah, yeah, yeah okay. Um, they, they off themselves a lot. Uh, soldiers off themselves a lot. Um, and then there's weird niches of uh, suicidal behavior like um, people that are, animal technicians or um, veterinarians. They put down animals all day. You know, people do the math in front of them and say, I don't have 500 bucks. Put the dog down. You know? And apparently that's, they got into the job to help animals. It's gut-wrenching. So anesthesiologists, um, you know, people with access to the drugs, dentists, you know, they, they run their own business. They get into financial trouble. They start writing scripts for themselves. And, and uh, veterinary techs. These are people that the little niches of the population uh, with the know-how and the stress, and they, they off themselves at a much higher rate than other people do. So it's not, it's not, like people talk about gun violence, okay? Taking an AR-15 to a school is a horrible thing, okay? But every weekend, handguns actually kill the shit out of people all over the country, you know, numerically, like every single weekend, <laughs> you know, all over the place. And in much the same way, there's a uh, a quiet sort of popcorn popping of, of, of a suicide all over the country. If I had to give advice, I'd say, you know, lock up your guns. You know, the number one way of people killing themselves is they find they have access to a gun. You know, uh, so lock them up. And then, uh, you know, um, don't ignore the obvious signs. You know, most people, most people ask for help, and you should help them. Yeah. So two questions to follow up. Uh, what are the obvious signs? And then one thing you touched upon that I <clears throat> liked was the male testosterone versus depression. Because uh, I remember going to therapy, and the whole time before I went, I was like, I I can man up. I don't need this. 
Mm-hmm. Um, the, yeah, yeah we're, I'm too strong for this. Mm-hmm. So how do we fight that thought process in your head? Well, um, I was a soldier, and you know, talk about fear and discipline, stuff like that. Everyone's afraid, and fear, it matters what you do with the fear, right? Yeah. Um, if fear makes you train harder, <laughs> if, fear, if fear makes you read that handbook they give you so that you know what to do when it hits the fan, that's what fear should do. It should be motivating. It's there to help you. It's here to sharpen things up. The adrenaline is there to keep you alive. Depression is not part of the um, feedback loop of reality. If your grandmother dies and you're sad about it, well, that's real, right? Right. Your grandmother was a real person. She died. You loved her. There's real emotions there, and you, you can process those and say, what would my grandmother want me to do? She'd want me to go on with my life, right? I'm going to start a foundation Unless in my grandmother's shoes. Oh, yeah, oh, yeah, or something like that. But you can process it because there's yeah. a person there to process it. Yeah. Depression, at least my, my depression, my monopolar depression thing, was abject emotional pain with no source. It was just there. There was nothing to process. Um, it was not brought on by a specific event. Your brain will try to put it, attach it to things, but it's just there, like the weather. You can momentarily or for some period of time function, but it's going to get you. You know, it's going to just pile up and, and you don't have the, it takes away your um, emotional elasticity. In other words, things are going to happen that are bad in life anyway and good. But when you're depressed, the good stuff doesn't count and the bad stuff makes you more depressed. And you don't have the ability to recover. Uh, and no amount of testosterone, you know, oh, suck it up, you know, drive on. Um, no, it, it, it takes away your ability to do that. You know, police officers kill themselves a lot because they go from domestic dispute to domestic dispute, and then they go home to their own domestic dispute. You know, there's no, there's no rest for them. There's no understanding. Um, and they're told, because they're police officers, you know, they're responsible and, and they can't show weakness, Right. So that's why they that's why they have to have special police officers, psychologists, psychiatrists, so that's within the brotherhood or sisterhood of law enforcement so that they can open up to them. Because going to an outside person that isn't a police officer, you just can't do it culturally. Yeah. You know, and in the army they have the same thing. You know, now um, when my grandfather came back from World War II, he was on a ship for a couple of months. But when people came back from Vietnam, they thought they were doing the right thing by getting that soldier home as quickly as possible. Now we know that you don't do that. <laughs> okay, if you're in Vietnam one day and three days later you're back on the street in Kansas, that's a really bad thing. <laughs> it doesn't, it doesn't, <laughs> right. well, uh, doesn't go yeah. well. So just, just so now what they do now in the Army is they're responsible, more responsible. We've learned things. And just like you ramp up for a mission, you ramp down. You come back from the mission, you turn in your stuff. You, you, it's you, a decompression you period. Decompression period. And that's apparently helping out a lot. Um, so that's how, that's what you need. So so if you have, if someone you, you love has depression, you're going to know it. You probably already know it. If you're listening to this now, you, you know who we're talking about in your family. You, you could probably write down right now, if you're listening to this podcast, you know who has depression. It's my right? dog. Your dog. Dogs have depression all the time. If I was your dog, I'd have depression. <laughs> um, and... It's more of a feeling than anything else. 
I'm fine. Or, or they stop doing the things they like to do. Uh, classically, if you're going like, to open a textbook, they would be uh, talking about death, talking about you know, the way things would be better off if they weren't around, or, oh, I'm the problem around here, or giving away the stuff that they, that they, lo- that they love. Um, um, and there's a lot of funny things that happen. I mean, I was in a mental hospital, and because of HIPAA, you know, I know why I'm there, and I've got a big scar around my neck. I mean, they know why I'm there. I'm the guy with a big scar around my neck, okay? But you don't know why any of the people that are there are there. So it's, it's like, it's like um, what's that, uh, uh, Alice's Restaurant. You got your mother rapers and your father rapers sitting on the, you know, the bench. So I played Risk with a guy for the afternoon, perfectly nice guy. And uh, he, uh, his dad, his stepdad was abusing him, and he stabbed him to death and burned the house down. Ooh, was that a guy you want to beat at Risk? Yeah, I played it. Yeah. <laughs> I didn't know. I didn't know. I didn't know it was later. But, but you know, and then, and then I remember my first lunch there. I was talking to some young woman was there, and she's perfectly nice. She's talking about her mother giving her a hard time and needed a break, and she was just going, it was bad. And I go, okay, you know, whatever. And so they serve food, and, and she looks down almost casually and goes, chicken patties again, and instantly takes the whole plastic tray, turns upside down, and slams it down on the counter. <laughs> food goes everywhere. And she's like, ah, oh, God, and she just flips out right from I pick up my food, <laughs> go to the table. You don't, you don't know. Um, is that the place? Is it like jail where to get respect, you go up and beat the biggest, baddest person? No, in the- <laughs> no. Everyone, everyone's pretty well medicated. Okay. Um, I had longer hair than this and a little longer beard and a big horrible scar on my neck. Um, and I, wa- I mean, the water, it was a 40-foot bridge. It was waist-deep water with rocks, of course, the bottom is New Hampshire. And so the rope was strong enough to break my fall, but weak enough that it broke before it broke my neck. Okay. So I had a scar around my neck and a bruised left heel. I walked away from doing Oh, that. man. Um, so the funny part is I'm standing there and, I mean, as fine as I could expect to be. I mean, I'm conscious standing up in the water to throw up off my neck. My neck hurts. My left foot hurts. I'm standing there in this really calm um, August. You know, the water's nice. You know, it's clear, calm water up to my waist. I'm not in danger of drowning. And then um, the repurposed firefighter bass boat with a firefighter with a life jacket and a little red helmet threw me a rope. So I, I, just, I just hung myself. <laughs> so much irony. You know, and I'm not drowning or anything, you know. And so they pull the bass boat up and throw a rope to me. So backing up, uh, around that time, right, you said you had bought the shotgun a couple times. Yeah. Can you talk a little bit about what was going on? And I'm assuming you view this as a pretty major mistake. Oh, yeah. 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 Uh, so what was going on? What was leading you down uh, that path to finally uh, just walk to that bridge? And was there a final cry for help? In my case, no. No? No. I will go for walks. The rope was there. HVAC technician is a rope we use to pull the boxes up full of filters. So the rope was there. And uh, I knew it was there. And like many people with depression who have suicidal idolation, and again, if you have suicidal idolation, if you're thinking for yourself and you have a plan, go get help. But in my, my case, I went for a walk, and on this particular walk, I just went, oh, let me get the rope. It was just, this time I'm taking the rope with me. So you almost weren't thinking about it. It was 
it was trance-like. Yeah. And then um, I tied a noose because I was in the Boy Scouts. <laughs> and uh, <laughs> Fucking New Hampshire, man. Fucking New Hampshire. <laughs> and by the way, they don't directly teach you how to do a noose in a in 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 um in Boy Scouts, what they do is they teach you how to do a fisherman's knot and and the fisherman's knot that you use to wrap around itself with a loop is a noose it's, to ooh. put a hook on. You can do a fisherman's with a thick piece of rope? That's what a noose is. You back it onto itself and wrap it around. Yeah. Okay, you and, pull it back. Okay. And we're and we're probably in a state, North Carolina, where it's actually illegal to tie one. So Oh, then yeah, I know that. There are a lot of a lot of states do that. Yeah, getting caught with a tied noose is probably bad. I could see it, bro. I could see that. <laughs> yeah. I'm just fishing for really large fish. <laughs> yeah, exactly. I haven't put the hook in there yet. So, uh, so yeah. So um, Need to ban white sheets, too, while yeah. we're at it. Yeah. So I'm in the hospital. So I, I am going for this walk, and I'm in this, in this depression. I mean, the only way we can explain it is if, if you're walking along and you see someone who's on fire, like head to toe on fire, and you see them jump off a bridge, you go, well, the guy was on fire. He was obviously you know, he was on fire. Of course he jumped into the water. And, and that's the only way I can describe the, the amount of emotional pain that can happen with, with depression. Um, just, just abject, unsourceable emotional pain that doesn't have any um, rhyme or reason or doesn't come from direction or anything. It's just, it's just horrible. So what are the people around you doing? Because you allude, you say that you bought a shotgun a few times uh, and your, your wife took it back to the store. So how is your family reacting to the fact? Like, what are they doing to help? Well, they didn't know. In fact, for a pretty long time, they didn't know. Because I had become withdrawn from Christina and I damaged our relationship, um, she thought I was just out somewhere. So she didn't know. Until I jumped off the bridge, until she saw it in the newspaper the next day. Oh, okay. In fact, my boss noticed I was missing first, and he called up. And so my boss was the first one to come to the hospital, figuring that Christina had tried to kill me. Oh. So <laughs> it was pretty. It's a pretty elaborate, like. Pretty wild. Yeah, like. Yeah, it was pretty wild. She threw Lance off a bridge. Yeah, off a bridge. <laughs> it's terrible. So, uh, you know, I, I own it. I, I mean, it was my fault. You know, I made bad decisions around my depression. I tried to solve it in a bunch of different ways and hide it and man up and then, you know, t- take the drugs and then you have these horrible side effects from the drugs. So you try to take other drugs and it takes six weeks to ramp up on a drug and you're losing jobs and getting jobs and waiting for your health insurance to kick in and all this terrible stuff. Um, I, I, re- I remember one of the, the worst moments of my depression was is I went to uh, see a doctor and I had to work, right? So I'm driving there and I was a couple minutes late. And it's a psychiatrist's office. So this woman works at a psychiatrist's office. And she, she told me that I need to be on time. Uh, and do, you, know, you should value the psychiatrist's time. And she was like berating me <laughs> at the desk, right? So she, you, know, you know, you need to be here on time. And I go, I go, you do realize that you work in a psychiatrist's office. And that the people you're talking to might not have the mental capacity to take what you're saying in a good way. Yeah. <laughs> you know? yeah, like maybe you shouldn't talk to mental patients that you know that, that way. But um, that was, it. and it, it. I mean, yeah, yeah. I mean, they, they don't know. So I mean, does anyone dispute that that most of our greatest artists have had really bad mental problems? 
and, and that you know. See, I, I see. Yeah. I hate that shit. Yeah. I think that whole idea of the tortured artist yeah. uh, is kind of BS because there's not a lot of there really aren't a lot of. Were well, you creating art when you were depressed? Uh, I was writing. Yeah, you were writing a lot. Yeah, like poetry and prose and stuff. Yeah, no, mostly just uh, mostly fiction. Really? Yeah. Uh, I think a lot of artists are very in tune with their emotions, and they don't. They like they take in the world, and they're they're very in tune with their emotions, and that's troubling because I think that the world that we live in, especially in America, teaches you to I don't want to say dumb down your emotions, but dim them a little bit. Like, oh, yeah. so I, men I, men don't cry. Yeah, men don't cry. So your artist who is very in touch with their emotions, they're already weird because they're very in touch with their emotions. Well, what I, I think guess. it is is that only so much emotion gets through the filter of art. You know, and the, the most interesting character in a book has to be the author. So every character in the book is going to be less interesting than the author. Okay, you, you can't yeah. write a more you can't write a more interesting character than yourself because you're just limited by your own experience. But does it? I don't know. I just think it takes a boring level people write boring books of in. motivation hmm? to paint a painting or write a comedy set or write a book, right? And to me, when I'm feeling maybe it's just me personally, but when I'm feeling really sad and stressed out and depressed, I don't give a fuck about writing comedy or going to open mics, right? So to me, it's like, how can you be super depressed and uh, I don't know? How can you be a tortured artist? I, to me, it's an oxymoron. I, 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 as I sit here right now, Andrew, am a tortured artist. That's why. That's why I'm asking I, you. I, 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 I drive around um, for an HVAC company, and I fix the air conditioning at cell towers because mm-hmm. there's no people involved, right? And I listen to my tapes, right? And I write stuff. And I drive around, and I and I listen to stuff, and I write stuff into my notebooks. And I go to open mics, and every time I get up there, and I'm and, and, and learning things, and and getting better at it, and wondering what the what the next what the next step is, and cringing at the people that that don't take it professionally or seriously, and trying to be nice to everybody, and just working on my thing. Uh-huh. You know? I don't get up there and say, "Hi, I'm Lance, the guy that jumped off a bridge," you know, because that's I have not become a good enough comedian to make that funny, because it's not funny. Um, I just respect the art of comedy a lot. You try to learn what it is. There's rules, there's structure, and then you just pr- pursue that. You know, I did the seven-story thing for Justin Scranton, great guy. It was a great show, you know, about wrath, it wrath, seven deadly sins, and then... Um, it's a great anime. It is a great anime. It is. <laughs> I like the anime. And then for with Deb Aronin, um I got to go just on the Full Steam Brewery thing. So I'm just, just starting to get on. Starting to get booked. Shows. Oh, yeah, man. Um, one little tiny level up. Um, and that's because it, with someone with depression, I'm very used to being self-critical. So I'm highly motivated because I assume I suck. And, uh, okay. and, and we have a whole generation of people that assume that they don't suck and they deserve something. And, and it, I am in high contrast to most of the people that I'm doing comedy with. Can you be narcissistic oh. and depressed at the same time? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. I forgot. Uh, or entitled and depressed? Can you assume that you don't suck but be depressed? No, I, I 
think I suck. And like I had a boss, right? And the highest compliment that Bill the Chance would give me, the old cranky old plumber, was he would go, well, you didn't fuck it up that bad. <laughs> <laughs> right? And he, if he said that, you're like, yes! You know? And so if I get up there and, and the stuff hits and everything else, I still get off the stage and go, all right, this sucked, you know? So I have my own inner Bill Belichick constantly telling me that, that you know, you need to get better and this is how and... So until it's one solid, gleeful five minutes, it's not going to feel right. Uh, so I was, I forgot where I saw this, but it was like the study of people who master a craft is like a graph. And it's like when you first start, like in your first year or two, you think you're good. But then as you understand the craft more, there's this huge dip in confidence because you realize how much you don't know. Yeah. And I think I think that a lot of people here, um, especially when they first started on a comedy, they think that they know. But once you get start getting realistic, you're like, oh, I have a long way to go. It was like anybody who's mastered anything, like three years in, they realize how bad they really are. Like once they understand the totality of the craft. And you need that ignorance though at start at first. Yeah, to keep getting up. To keep getting up. Well we, we have such we have such beautiful people doing it. Yeah. We have people uh, like Chappelle or whatever, or I might not agree with them as humans, okay? But you can agree that their stand-up is fluid and conversational and seems to be impromptu and It's packaged nice and it's delivered nice. Natural. Gone are the days. I mean, I love one-liners. Gone are the days of one-liners, you know. Chappelle is just, hey, let me talk to you about something. You know, yeah. they off-the-cuff talking about something. Now, every syllable is probably mapped out fairly, fairly well. Bill Burr goes from chunk to chunk to chunk and changes it in between so he doesn't go crazy, apparently. But it's all there in his head, you know? And the illusion is such that people in the audience go, I could do that. Exactly. (laughs) That's the problem. That's the problem. problem. Because they they just think that he has so much stage time and he's so good that he can get up there and just wing it. He's not winging it. You know, he's not winging it. He's the opposite of winging it. He's, I'm, you know, he's doing what what I'm doing, what what I'm told to do, which is talk to myself, which is listen to my own tapes and talk to myself, mirrors, friends, whatever, and go over those routines, go over and over and over again, and have things pop up. Yeah, I guess I I, I want to kind of go back and um, retake what I was saying about um, tortured artists mm-hmm. being an oxymoron. Uh, I just want to reiterate that, or not reiterate, but I just want to say that, I don't know, for me personally, that's what I was talking about from my perspective. I don't want to, like, try and um, invalidate anybody's struggles or problems. Well, my struggle is invalid. How so? I just, I, sitting here, I don't find my, my own struggle valid. Okay. <laughs> I'm like, I'm like, I should really have, I should have this. I'm, I'm. Not a dumb guy, you know. I don't have any stability, and I, it, I have all this self doubt. Okay, what was the recovery process like? Shake and bake. Uh, first of all, I was put at the top of the list, and I still had to wait three days in a hospital. So these little out of the way rooms in hospitals for this, a lot of hospitals don't have mental wards. So like like hanging yourself is not like a emergency. get in there emergency. It's a three-dayer? I didn't. I was in there being fed and contained. 
with minimal medical care. Uh, I was never seen by the hospital psychiatrist or the hospital chaplain for three days. And they sat a security guy in front of the door and, until I got a room somewhere, a bed somewhere. Uh, New Hampshire was, at the time, maybe they're better now, but they're pretty bad at the time. So I did that three security days. guard should have watched Epstein. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. They were watching me, not Epstein. Uh, happened nine years ago. So then, then uh, a sheriff comes and puts you in shackles on your ankles and on your wrists with a chain in between, and you do the walk of shame through the hospital. Not the good one. Right? In a, into the sheriff's car, and they take you to the New Hampshire State Mental Institution, where I was there for 10 days. And then uh, I called Ray Duckler from the Concord Monitor to pick me up. I said, I'm the guy that jumped off the bridge. Do you want to write a story about it? There was an awkward pause. He goes, let me call you right back. Where are you? And I went... Mr. Duckler, I am actually calling you from the New Hampshire State. <laughs> Here's the number. My name is Lance Patrick Dixon. Call me back. So as soon as he affirmed that it wasn't a crank call, he's like, "Yeah, I'll come pick you up." And we, you know, as my mother wanted me to hide it, you know, and she had a cover story all done, and I was going to go get disability and and uh, be a crazy person, you know, semi paraprofessionally. Uh, and I was like, "No, I'm not going to hide anymore. I'm going to." Tell people about it. So um, called up Ray. Ray picked me up with a photographer. We did a story for the Concord Monitor, for what it's worth. Um, and uh, I have been out, quote, unquote, with depression since then. You should have tried to get in a New Hampshire movie theater. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> so how did you get to North Carolina? Uh, I had friends down here. And I, after my being on involuntary committed committed in New Hampshire, I got out and uh, tried therapy and drugs and things like that, and further further destroyed my marriage through bad decisions. Uh, distanced myself from my kids and Christina was terrible, and I repeatedly lost jobs and uh, went back to the hospital for week stints at a time. And after the fourth or fifth time of that, and I know some people in Carolina say, "Well, come down here, you can live here rent free and." You know, it's sunny down here and whatever. And uh, um, after thoroughly making bad decisions and destroying what was left of my marriage with Christina, um, I uh, went cold turkey off my meds and was a little loopy and did it. Came down here. So is it a mistake? Time will tell. <laughs> How uh, long have you been here? Two years. Okay. And I haven't been back to a hospital, and all this weird health stuff, um, all this stress-related stuff, um, from my gums stopped bleeding, um, uh, suicidal isolation, I don't have any more. I'm not on, a, I'm not on any drugs right now. Um, I, I do talk to a mental health care professional. I have some on tap, you know, sort of a safety net thing. But I'm doing a, a thousand percent better down here. Do you think it was just the change of scenery? Uh, well, I I don't know. I mean, I, I could have been misdiagnosed. Maybe I just have a massive case of seasonal infective disorder because there's not a lot of sunlight in New Hampshire. Well, there's uh, there is so most modern uh, mental institutions are designed. If you look at them, uh, the newer ones, they're all designed with. Um, open air, uh, lots of windows, lots of stuff like that. Because uh, it turns around the turn of the century, they noticed that environment 
plays a huge Imagine role that. in your mental health. Huh. You, know, you know, if you're a child molester, they have to let you out into the yard every day. But if you're a mental health uh, patient, you, they don't let you, they, they don't let you outside. Really? <laughs> Did not know that. So, so you could be the worst, some of the worst criminals in the world. They still have more rights than uh, mental health people, mental health patients. Do. So, but I mean, I don't know. Maybe uh, it was the change of environment because you made a whole bunch of new friends. You are in a new relationship and stuff like that. Uh, I don't know. I'm not a doctor, but something changed. Yeah, and I, I think comedy does play a part in that, having a creative outlet and to... Uh, um, Is it a driving purpose in your life? I, I'm finding that 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 um, I'm becoming a completionist. I enjoy my job because there's only one reason it's broken. You know, there's no there's no subjectivity to my job. Um, I go there, I fix things, I, I did it. You know, there's a beginning, a middle, and end. Cooking, there's a beginning, a middle, and end. You know, I like making bread. You know, you start with the ingredients, you make bread, and that feels good. Comedy feels good because um, there's always more to learn, and it's a process, and you go and learn the process and implement the process, and like little things. Like I watched Steve Martin's master class, and he says, Steve Martin says, don't bother saying hello to the audience. Just, really, just go out there and just hit him in the fucking teeth. Well, he wouldn't say that he's Steve Martin. <laughs> but just just start your act, you know. That's what you're there for. And, and uh, Louis C.K. says, you know, it's like a samurai sword. You take your best stuff. Don't rely on your clothes or take your best thing that you're supposed to be clothes with and put it at the beginning and force yourself to be better, you know, and fold it in. You know? and I so saw you, that he did that. Like I saw him yeah, say that. Like, yeah. yeah. And you've and, been implementing this stuff and has it really? It's, it's, it is uh, invigorating. I have, I have the Sherry Berry joke. Yeah. For those of you listening around the world, Sherry Berry is this wonderful lady whose picture is in every single elevator in the state. Shout out to Sherry Berry. Shout out to Sherry Berry, wherever you are. her on the podcast. And so uh, I am a six-foot-one, 250-pound guy with a beard, white guy, right? I make women nervous, right? So I acknowledge that I do that. And so I say, every time I get into an elevator, Sherry Berry gets out, right? Ha, 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 ha. It's a great joke. Great joke, right? So I was closing with that, right? Now I open with that. I put that at the beginning, and I have to come up with new good stuff for the end. And it creates that pre- um, pressure makes diamonds or hemorrhoids, depending upon what material you, you start with, <laughs> right? <laughs> Location. So that, that learning those things, that process is very rewarding to me. And, and that's why I like comedy. Because it's not like you can stop learning about it. Uh-huh. It's not like you can stop getting better at it. So normally, I would tell someone uh, with depression not to get into comedy. Uh, but we're in a world where there's not access to inf- uh, insurance, so not everyone can just go out there and get the mental health that they need. Uh, so what would you suggest to someone who maybe doesn't have access to get the help that they need? Should they get into a creative outlet? Uh, would you suggest comedy? Well, I, I think a lot of the angst and pain and sadness in this world and a lot of the medication that's handed out is because of, of what would be called a blocked wish. There's that stupid, stupid guidance counselor moment where some asshole with an office under the stairs with a blazer, with corduroy blazer with the leather elbows, 
and they sit down and they ask you the classic question, if you could do anything in the world, what would it be? You know, it is a stupid, it, it, it do that, you know, you know, um, everyone has these blocked wishes and they wish they did things. And I think a lot of people are taking pills because they're accountants that want to be tuna fishermen. And then, <laughs> right. Now, maybe you can't be a tuna fisherman right off. Yeah. Maybe you just go to the tuna fisherman's bar and say, hey, can I go out with you and then try it? Maybe I can become a deckhand or something. You know, maybe I can do the books for a tuna company and get out in the boats once in a while. But there's always a way to segue it. Mm-hmm. You know, but everyone thinks I'm not saying sell everything you have and, and run off and, and join the circus if you want to be in the circus. What I'm saying is, is keep your body and soul together and have a plan and break up that blocked wish into small attainable parts and start doing it. You know, you know, if you want to be if, if you're a dishwasher and you want to be a clown. There's a library. There's the internet. You can learn clowning. clowning videos. I'm working on the unicycle right now. Actually. Yeah, unicycle, right? But you can you can break any wish up into small attainable goals and just and just like uh, you know, I did open mics and then I did five minutes, whatever. And now I'm going to say, okay, I'm th- I'm, I'm going to write all another whole new five minutes. And I did. I come up, run another five minutes, and it, it's better. You know, and once you do that, you you start making bigger things and you do more stuff. And and um, if you don't have access to help, you have access to people, the people that love you. Talk to the people that love you. Bounce ideas off of them and and make a plan and and make some kind of progress, and you'll be happier. Maybe not happy, but you know, happier. You know, just small baby steps. Like if you take a step every day, you'll eventually walk a mile. You know. the, yeah, well, yeah. I mean, I um, joined Toastmasters because I wanted to learn about giving speeches. How far? Toastmasters is a great organization. Yeah. And um, I have too much confidence, and it's an organization about gaining confidence. So I didn't stay at Toastmasters very long because I'm like, hey, how you all doing? You know, I, I, I don't mind talking this to you. Milton Berle over here. Hey. I used to wing my speeches, and I don't like that. Like, yeah. I want you to have them all written down. I know. You got to wing it, baby. I went point to point, which oh, is did? which is which is like Tarzan. You have your speech is like four trees, and you just swing between those. You know, I'm gonna go to this point, and I'm gonna go to this point, and this point, and then you improvise in between. But you you have the beginning, of it. so it's yeah. Well, so, I would always try to throw a punchline in there. Like if two. if I went to three sentences without a punchline, you have to have a punchline. Like what? Yeah. Why would I give a serious speech? Without punchlines in it? Why would you do a serious speech? Is a terrible. You yeah. know what? I just had an idea. I had two ideas, actually. Two ideas. Idea well, number, what was idea the old number show, one. What was the old show that you were thinking about? It was a D&D show. Yes. yes. that's You ran that uh, at the pit in Chapel Hill um, briefly. What, two months? Yeah. I, uh, everyone loves D&D, and they all want to play, and you can't get four people at a table once a week. I see you. All right. Here are my two <laughs> ideas. These are my two ideas, Lance. Okay. One, go ahead and Feel free to veto this immediately. Right. You change your stage name to Pat Dixon. You're a country outlaw comic. Yeah, your name. Ouch. <laughs> <laughs> I love the name. All right. Here's my second. My middle idea. name is Patrick. But I know. I noticed it earlier. I was like yeah. Pat Dixon. That's a pretty rad stage name. Pat 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 Dixon. Yeah, that's one of those androgynous names that you would choose so that you get your book published and they don't know that you're. Mm-hmm. Uh, what about running a Toastmasters type show? 
Where you play like the um, a Toastmaster type. Yeah, show. you're the MC. You have we. You throw a table up on stage, and you. Uh, it's a it's a grand performance where you have a uh, special guest speakers here enjoying this monthly comic dinner on stage. Hmm. I don't know. It'd be fun to do once. I mean, you've done something like that with uh, Fishbowl, which is basically... So Fishbowl is where like you have topics that's just for the listeners, mm-hmm. and you pull out a topic and you do comedy based off the topic, just off the top of your head. Well, that's pretty much well, table talks. Yeah, that's table talks. I, uh, I, as a comic, feel that improvisation should be behind the scenes where I go over here in my own time with my cozy sweater on and I vomit onto all these yellow legal pads and then I take all the nice little bits of carrot and all of the, you know, I line them up, you know, and I come to you, the audience, with a product and I show you that I care because I, it, you could tell that I took effort to put everything together. Not a crowd work guy. Okay. Crowd work, I, no. I'm just not, I'm not, in, I'm not, I improvise. I improvise. I create stuff. But I, I feel that that is that is like three steps back in the process for me. I, you know, I agree with that during paid shows. I hate it when a comic during like open mic do what you want during a paid show. It is your obligation to produce the best set yes. that you can for the audience, yeah. and maybe even a tested set that you've tried at open mics yeah. because you're supposed to put butts in seats. Yep. Yep. And Unless that's what you do, honor the contract. If you're good at it, you are very but, improvised. But uh, if you're may good I, at it, may I point out one thing? Yes. Okay. Another thing that people get wrong all the time: Don Rickles, the, mm-hmm. the the king of mean, when he was doing crowd work, quote unquote, that wasn't crowd work. He had all the material written. Yeah. And he found the people the material fit in the crowd. Yeah. I, I'm like I'm always disappointed in movies. I always tell my people, like, how come like, when I watch The Simpsons, it's laugh after laugh after laugh every single episode? And I watch a movie with 50 times the budget, and it doesn't have the amount of comedy that an episode of The Simpsons has. Because The Simpsons has, like, how many upteen writers contribute to the I mean, Hundreds, apparently. They file all the jokes if they don't use them and stuff like that. Um, it's a better system. That's all. So obviously that was your big mistake, was actually taking that leap. Well, my big, my big mistake was uh, trying to macho out and hide my depression. And that's what led to uh, me doing that. Your beard says macho to me. Like I just... <laughs> so after you moved down here to North Carolina, and I assume you found comedy down here. Well, one of the, one of the, I came down here to do comedy. Okay. Um, I assume that you're making... You've made a few mistakes down here. Since then, uh, whether that be with comedy or whether that be like navigating your own um, work in HVAC or... I was on WHUP in Hillsborough. Yeah, you wanted to do radio. I was doing community radio. And um, there was a guy there, they did this um, radio hour with musicians. And there was a musician there that had, uh, whose life was saved because they just happened to find lung cancer at the earliest possible moment. It's a miracle, really. They were looking for something else, sonogram, whatever, and they found this little dark spot. Saved the guy's life. So he goes on. I'm the comic relief on this radio show, right? I do comedy in between the musical guests. 
And so he goes on for like three or four minutes about cancer. Okay. So, and I'm like, we're talking, we're still talking about cancer, right? <laughs> four or five minutes. And I just couldn't take it anymore as a comedian. And, and so I put on my best radio voice and I go, this episode of Past the Hat has been brought to you by cancer. It grows on you. <laughs> <laughs> and, and that got me kicked off the show. Oh, you got fired? <laughs> Oh my God! Cancer isn't isn't funny, even though you all laughed all, all over the world. You laughed, thank you. But cancer <laughs> is not funny. Ah, who has my favorite cancer joke? Is it? Uh, uh, my mother was a cancer, which is ironic because she uh, was murdered by a giant crab. <laughs> I forget. Uh, is this, it's not Stephen Wright. It might be Wow, Demetri Martin or something like that. But yeah, I'm surprised. One joke, huh? You weren't skirting the line. No. You, weren't, you weren't on Skid Row before no, that? I, I offended the other person on the show. And oh, come on. I wasn't invited back. Wow. And there's another challenge that makes you grow, because it's the radio. It's clean. Yeah. That's a good punchline. You know. You know. I wouldn't have fired you. Thank you. Thank you very much. I would have kept you on, too. I mean, we got away with a lot down at the radio station. I had a whole show that was, like, long. Feg- Do you know what a Feghood is? Um, no. It's like a the moth joke. Okay. Long, intricate stories where nothing means anything. It's just a setup to mm. a dumb pun. And I had a an, uh, half-hour-long half block where I did th- just three of them. So they were 10-minute-long stories. Puns. But they would be talking about hardcore alcoholism. U- ultimately, cul- that one culminated into a your mama joke about doing your mother. You know, and it... I got away with that. We cussed all yeah. the time by accident. Oh, yeah. People used to cuss all the time on the radio. But we were a small community radio station. Oh, what are you going to do about it? Yeah. yeah. I think the average person doesn't get offended by comedy. I really don't. I think most people have a nine to five, and they come to a comedy show just to laugh. And I think it's the comics trying to police themselves without asking the actual audience do they care. I I like I like avoiding the laser beams and addressing things without directly addressing them so that we can laugh about them. I had a joke that no one was offended by where I go, is it still a rape joke if I ask your permission first before I tell it? Fair enough. I like that. I like that. Right. And then people would be like, oh, you're joking. I'm, I go, I'm, and then I would make fun of the people who are sensitive to it. I go, listen, I'm not joking about rape. I'm joking about joking about rape. Very true. Yeah. Right? And, you know, rape is not funny, but, you know, like, you know, my, my son, you know, uh, wondering if his left hand gives consent if he does the stranger. I mean, that's funny. <laughs> it can be, you know. When the thing can be funny if uh, looked at from the correct angle. Look up the stranger. Google it right now. Not the Albert Camus novel. No, no, no. The, strain, <laughs> the stranger. Roll under your arm, make it fall asleep. Oh. Um, Definitely. That's stranger. Yeah, I agree. I think uh, a lot of the infighting and stuff within uh, certain comedy communities and calling out other comics for being, uh, I mean, really, it's a general audience doesn't know or care because they don't give a shit about any of the local comics. Uh, and, and, I'm, and I'm older. I mean, I'm 48, and I'm always up doing these mics, these 20-year-old kids, you know. And I don't like to punch down at minorities or, or women or, or whatever. And, um, you know, so I don't, I don't do any material about that. Yeah. You know, and then. Is it funny? That's all I care about. Like yeah. Bill Burr has some jokes and I'm like, 
he talks about black people, and I'm like, I don't know if he could get away with it in certain. I mean, if he uh-huh. wasn't Bill Burr, yeah. but if he was coming up now, but it's funny. Like if you just take the stick out of your ass, it's funny. Yeah, I, I'm, I'm just saying as a, I, I can take it and I understand. Yeah, you know, but but again, you know, I've been involuntarily committed. I've been four or five hospitalized four or five four or five times. I was in the army. I'm getting a d- divorce. I have three kids. I've I've damaged my relationship with my my children. You know, um, I have a lot of stuff I went through. You know. But um, when I'm in the comedy club, I'm feeling good. I usually wear a suit or something. So it looks like I'm a professional. You know, I look good up on stage. And people must look at that and go, oh, well, Lance is, you know, whatever, you know. I am okay with with people making fun of me or with their idea of me, you know, because I, I still feel like an awkward 14-year-old kid most of the time. Yeah. I was but, going, you know, I assumed that your story was going to be like you hunting the wrong animal during the wrong season or something. <laughs> like, <laughs> like you have a really like macho, macho hunting look. <laughs> hunting. Um, I mean, I don't know. I get what, I, I get what you guys are saying. But, but I think, I think everything going on with, with women in comedy and minorities in comedy thrashing and, and beating the shit out of the patriarchy or whatever, perfectly healthy. Oh, yeah. But like every revolution, if you read about revolutions, they usually get taken over by crazy people and they go a little too far and then they come back a little bit. <laughs> you, know? <laughs> you know, they usually go a little bit, little bit, you know. You got to go, go a little crazy. A little Just... bit, yeah, you know, you have to let it out, you know, and then you, get, you know, reel it back in a little bit and then people go, oh, okay. Balanced again. Balanced again. But Balanced with the force. But the pendulum, but the pendulum swings all the way over a little too much. It goes back. You know. You bring balance to the force. Right. Which is coming out December twentieth, I believe. Yeah. Bill Burr is in it. He's in the new Star Wars. I think so. Yeah. Oh. He's in the Mandalorian. That's what it is. I don't know what it is. Is that a spinoff? Yeah. And, and because the Mandalorian has had their helmet on the entire time, I think the Mandalorian is going to be a chick. Okay. Wait, wait, wait. Who's the Mandalorian? Is that it's the... a spinoff from Star Wars? You know who Boba Fett is? Yeah. Boba Fett was a uh, Mandalorian death commando. And the Mandalorian Empire was who they went to war with bef- way back. The um, Star Wars is just too big for me, man. It's like The Lord of the Rings. That's another one where I'm like, I've seen the three main movies, mm-hmm. but there's just so much canon. I, it would take well, too much a, time to go through it. Tolkien was a professor of dead languages, and he just like it's ridiculous. Man. I just I want he created whole languages. You can't compare Tolkien to Star Wars because Star Wars, Star Wars is a drop in the bucket compared to, to Tolkien because Tolkien actually wrote languages <laughs> and songs and history, which is respect and fables. I respect it. For, you know, they don't have... That got written, all those Star Wars novels and stuff like that, that's all the work of hundreds of people being paid, stuff like that. Tolkien is out of one dude's head. That's what's so amazing. <laughs> you you know? got to find your thing to nerd out about, right? Right. Like, maybe Lance is a Star Wars... Mar, mine is Naruto. I know the entire Naruto world. Yeah. I know about all the races, all the clans. I saw uh, you running here today. Was <laughs> <laughs> I get it. I like Naruto. I like Star Wars and stuff. But it's just, it's really got to get me. And even then, like Naruto, I was nerding out about that for about six months. Hmm. And I got watched probably three, four hundred episodes. 
not even halfway done. And it, I fizzled out. I don't have the endurance to get through something the, the, that the big. Editing, the editing of them is so bad I can't watch them. They started getting bad towards the end. But I stayed I stayed loyal. I'm still the watching them every now and then. I read uh, you, Boruto. Boruto's rough, but I'm, I am following Boruto along. Um, did not know he was going to go that way. I did not know. I forgot who, who wrote Naruto. God damn it. I can't even think of the name right now. I did not know he was going to go that route. I'm not happy. Um, I want to know who Rock Lee's wife is. It's Tintin, right? No, it's not Tintin. It's not Tintin. Uh, Thank God. Yeah. No, Tintin is the most useless character. Uh, Sakura. Sakura has her uses. Um, well, I don't know. I don't know. I'll have to finish the series. Yeah. But, yeah, I mean, I get it. I do the same thing with sports. Like, for a couple of years there, I was How all about... How did we end up on Naruto? MMA. Just nerding out about shit that has a huge universe, right? We were talking about Star Wars, and it's just like... It, it's intimidating, because I've seen all of the movies... But I haven't seen them enough to keep track of everything. I don't. I know Boba Fett. I don't. Know, I didn't know what his people were called. Who's the bad guy in uh, the the last one? Snoke. Not Kylo. Snoke. He was Kylo Ren. I know he's the son of. Uh, he's Ben Solo. Yeah, but it's like it's just too big. It's too big. Yeah. Well, I mean, I was disappointed because they took the most hopeful character who was always hopeful and. Made him cynical and I, it just. Which character was this? Uh, Luke Skywalker. Luke. Oh, okay. <laughs> I just, it became Luke Skywalker is supposed to be the hopeful guy, the hero, and have him not be hopeful anymore. Really, I just, it lost me. Spoiler you know? alert: can't kill Han Solo, and then one movie later. Kill Luke Skywalker. I need a, I need a break. Yeah. I need a break. Yeah. It's not out with the old, in with the new. And the Mary kill Poppin, the boomers. The Mary Poppins season thing with the. the, the. <laughs> I She's was I was had very force powers. Entertained by I think my favorite movie of recent years was the Solo movie. Wow. Really, you're the one guy. Yeah, <laughs> I dug it, man. Had the dice. Did you want to see a good science fiction movie, folks? Go out and uh, dig up Ice Pirates. I've seen Ass Pirates. No, no, no. <laughs> Ice Pirates and Blade Runner. Blade, Blade Runner's Runner. good. Yeah. So how do you think, like, where would you evaluate yourself now in your whole journey? Uh, I am trying to repair my relationship with my children. I am, uh, like my job. Uh, and I am the next small attainable goal for me is a decent demo tape to submit to contests and festivals. Okay. So you need a you need a you need a tape. You have a tape yet? No. Let me know uh if we're ever booked on the same show again. Tell me ahead of time I'll come through and I'll film it for you. Thanks. See? All happens folks. Yeah. There we go. Uh so we like to end with a motivational speech. Sure. I can give a motivational speech. (laughs) From my van down by the river. (laughs) (laughs) I finally get that now. (laughs) (laughs) When did you end up seeing the sketch? Uh, For the class that I'm in, the sketch writing class. You just saw it? I had seen it before, but I never under... I didn't get it when I was a kid, but now I got it. It all comes back around. Exactly. 
when he I goes, actually just saw it two weeks ago. I had to write a little paper on it. Rewatch it. The watch. essence of that sketch is is that you have a guy who's a screw-up, who's profoundly sad, who's trying to give advice to young people, but he's so sad and so lost that he has to come back to himself every time. He has to go, or you'll end up like me in a van down by the river. That is pretty you much know? what I wrote in my paper evaluation of it. Yeah. If you watch Spade's face when he first goes through the table, he cracks. Because <laughs> that was not necessarily uh, planned. I think it might have been planned, but not with such force and theatrics. Uh, it's great. I love that sketch. But mm. continue, sorry. So we're looking for a motivational speech? Yep. Okay, so you're, you're, not, you're not happy. Uh, you need to list your resources and where you are. You need to have a place to live. You need to eat. You need, you need companionship. You need support. Okay? And then you have that dream you're going after. So you're going to take that dream you're going after, and you're, and you're going to see, um, you're going to break that dream down in, 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 into steps. Right? Okay? So if you want to be a rodeo clown, okay, there's all kinds of information out there on the internet about rodeo clowns. There are rodeos, there are clowns, there are human beings. You can go and talk to them. Okay? You can get a mentor for that dream. There's someone doing what you love, what you want to do. There's someone doing it right now. And they're humans, and not all of them are dicks. And some of them will talk to you. So you can go talk to that person who's doing what you would want to do. Okay? And first of all, find out if it really is as awesome as you think. And then if it is, how do they get there? You know? and, and then that becomes a a pathway breakable down to discernible steps. And then you, you start working the plan. I like that. So yeah. that's 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 how you do things. So, well, And I can't plug myself. I'm LP Dixon on YouTube if you want to see all my cringeworthy early uh, stuff in my uh, depression speech I did at, um, at uh, Toastmasters on there. So uh, it's very difficult to find stuff on YouTube. It's L.P. Dixon. L-P-D-I-X-O-N. One word, two words. Well, it's a name, so it's a two two letters and then my name. I didn't know uh, you had a YouTube channel. Yeah, I do have a YouTube I'll channel. I'll tell you subscribe if you want to subscribe to L- me. L.P. Dixon. What do you want to leave the people with, Andrew? Um, you could follow me on Instagram at Andrew Gleason NC. That's uh, one word. You can also follow humor in mistakes on Instagram at humor dot in dot mistakes. Uh, we got that up and running finally. Um, and, uh, keep an eye out for, uh, updates online about the, uh, the podcast. We're starting season two. It's going to be great. And final disclaimer, if you don't feel safe, get help. Get help. Uh, I want to leave the people. Oh, anything else you want to leave them with before no, I that's, sign out? That, that's it, man. If you're, that's, I just, I'm very happy to share this stuff. I just feel responsible because uh, people talk about triggers and, and things. And I, 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 if you think it's valid, I think it's valid. So, um, God damn, 106 know. videos, Lance. Yeah. You should be telling people about this at the mics. I had no idea. Yeah. Uh, you can follow me at I Keep It McReal on Instagram and Twitter. I try to use those actively. Um, and follow us at the Instagram Humor in Mistakes. Remember, mistakes are okay. Learn to find humor in your mistakes. And if you think that you've had a good mistake that would qualify for the show, jump on. Uh, we out. <laughs>